So, Father, what we're asking now is that you would speak very powerfully through this text to our hearts. We are coming not to be excited about whatever topic a pastor can come up with. Rather, we're interested in what the text penned by God has to say about life today. It's about you. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Even in this second of three services now, we come here to see Jesus. Him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I got off the highway for a brief moment to get my coffee, Starbucks. Black, by the way. As black as the oil in the Middle East, black. Standing behind me are two offices, and I hear them involved in conversation. I get involved in talking with them. They're talking about the fact that they're on their way towards a place just ahead on the highway where they're going to have to redirect the traffic flow. There was going to be a parade coming down a particular street, and there are going to be too many people in the cars that were going to slow down, gaze, and gawk. You know how it goes. There will be a traffic jam. It was going to be their responsibility to redirect the traffic. As I got back into my Jeep and headed on, I began to think about how God positions believers to be on a daily basis in the conversations of life, positioned by God to redirect the flow of traffic. Because people get so caught up in gawking and gazing at what's happening in the present. They don't take time to figure out the connection between what's happening in the immediate and what will take place in what I will call the ultimate. But Peter's going to do that for us. And he's going to give us a tremendous model, offer us a great illustration of how we go about doing that when we position ourselves, so to speak, as traffic cops in the intersections of life. So what I want to do with you this morning is that we're going to look very carefully at this model that Peter offers you and me on how to redirect attention towards Christ's death and resurrection in the midst of the experiences that people on a daily basis are caught up with. I want you to note, first of all, out of verses 11 through 16, God's plan for Christ. God's plan for Christ. Now, this begins to unfold where people are gathered together outside of Solomon's portico. This was a place where Jesus had previously taught. Furthermore, if you make your way at some point to Acts chapter 5, this will be a place where the people of God who will put faith and trust in Messiah will initially gather together for worship and instruction. Solomon's portico. They didn't have buildings at that time, but what they did have was an opportunity outside the temple to be able to examine the scriptures via the instruction of the apostles and a growing understanding of the connection between the events that have taken place in Jerusalem with Jesus. 
And so now you are a traffic cop in life's intersections. And you are redirecting the conversational flow at your workplace, in the neighborhoods, maybe around the dinner table or in the living room. You've got Thanksgiving, Christmas coming your way. How are you going to redirect conversations from what I would call the immediate to what I call the ultimate? Most people are interested in their plan for life or maybe God's plan for their life. But let's start with God's plan for Christ. And so now in verse 11, you and I are told here, exhibit A is now before the people. He's clinging to Peter and John, isn't he? He has just been raised up. This man has been lame from birth. But now Peter and John have told him, silver and gold have I none. But then they do something of far greater significance in terms of what they have to offer him in the name of Christ, he is told to rise up and walk, and he does so. And astoundingly, life will never be the same again. He won't be receiving any more alms. He's going to have to get a job. Life has changed. And he's excited. Take the exuberance of the moment now. What are you going to do as you connect that person's current experience to the ultimate experience when we stand before God. He's clinging to Peter and John, and so all the people, they're utterly astounded. Similar terminology to what you and I read about when the apostles began speaking in tongues, using the dialects of the people who had converged upon Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, so that they might be able to understand the gospel and take it back with them. Notice that they ran together. They ran together to the portico called Solomon, the very place that Jesus had previously taught. Now, there is this gathered to be scattered approach that we utilize in our understanding of the rhythms of this ministry. At the free church, we're gathered at this moment, but we're going to be scattered in coming moments, and we're going to take what we learn back with us. And you're going to have to figure out a way now to do what Peter does. He chooses his on-ramp to get involved in what I will call the ultimate conversations of life, taking them from the immediate to the ultimate, as should you and as should I, when people are so caught up in gazing at the immediacy of life. And so you are up now to verse 12, aren't you? And Peter saw it. And he's not going to miss an opportunity to address a crowd concerning Christ. And neither should you, neither should I, because we've got to take the, the experiences that people are, are involved with right now and make connecting points. And he does that for us as a model. And so Peter saw it, and he addressed the people. And notice what he says, men of Israel, here is how he begins with questions. Now, for too long, I believe, in America, Christians have gone about trying to deliver all the answers without first getting people to ponder the questions. We are now in a post-Christian era, which means then we're going to have to produce quality questions to get people to rethink their presuppositions and their assumptions 
before we begin to provide answers. Now, what Peter is doing at this point is that he will choose his on-ramp pertaining to his understanding of the heritage of these people. He calls them the men of Israel. But now, with his on-ramp questions, he asks, why do you wonder at this? Same word that was used in Acts chapter 2 to describe the wonderment at the fact that these lack, the, lack of formal, educated type men were able to speak with such linguistic precision. Why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us? It's as if we need Peter as the traffic cop now to redirect the flow of traffic from the immediate to the ultimate, from the healing of this man to the healer of this man, Jesus Christ. And likewise, what you and I have to do is to redirect the thinking and the conversations in this culture towards the one who matters most, Jesus. So, question, followed by another question. Why do you wonder at this? Or another why. Why do you stare at us? They're gazing. They're slowing down the traffic flow. They want to figure out what's going on here. We need the cop involved to move them around. As though by our own power, he's minimizing himself, as should we, or piety, we made him walk. And when I see that, my mind goes back to 1992, watching a football game. Dennis Bird, defensive lineman for the New York Jets, suffers a career-ending injury to his spine, still in his 20s, gifted athlete. But deep within, Mr. Bird continued to see God's hand at work, saw himself as the focus of God's loving care, even though externally, he didn't, have the, he didn't possess the attributes of walking anymore. So, do you know what his, the title for his autobiography was? Rise and Walk. Bird wrote, and there's the miracle. It's knowing that all of life is a blessing that the Lord is with us even when or if we falter. He's with us even if we fail. He's with us even when we break. Is that where you're at? And whether it be now or in the future when we're before him, he can make us whole. I've always believed that. I always will some thoughts here on this particular healing. In this particular healing, this healing was not dependent upon the man's faith. Nope. This lame man didn't expect or even sought healing. He was there simply to get alms, make it through another day. Another thought, when God does heal, it's to bring glory to Christ. Peter never took credit for the healing. And then again, when God heals, it's for a purpose. The healing is not the end. 
It was the means of sharing the gospel. So God sovereignly positioned now these people outside of Solomon's portico where Jew and Gentile alike come running because once again something of high significance is happening in Jerusalem and they want to be part of the experience. They're gazers. Maybe they're even gawkers. But now Peter has chosen his on ramp. He's got to figure out how to address the crowd. And sometimes you and I are put in positions where we're going to have to respond immediately to the experience that others now are staring down. He begins with a series of questions. And oftentimes that's what we're going to have to do as well. To get people to think and connect the immediate to the ultimate. Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though it's by our own power piety We've made him walk. And then you know what he does? You're up to verse 12 now. He knows his audience, as should you, as should I, when we're talking about what matters most. So he dips into Jewish heritage. And he says here that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and then in a very comprehensive way, he goes on to say, the God of our fathers, But now notice how he takes the past and connects to the present. Glorified his servant, Jesus. In other words, they have been hearing about Christ's death. They've been hearing about Christ's resurrection. But he now, through a series of questions, his on-ramp, then takes them, because they value their heritage, to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and then fast-forwards it to the cross the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that brilliant, what he's doing? So now he's taken history and tied it to contemporary events. Now some people are saying, I've got a past. And if only I could do it differently this go around, if I could go back in time. But here's what Peter has done. He goes back in time and then takes them from past to present, And likewise, he will take them from the immediate to the ultimate. He is making connections here to get people to rethink their assumptions about Jesus, as should you and as should I, as God puts us in a position to be cops that redirect traffic, the flow of traffic, the conversational flow of traffic, to deal with what matters most. He gets them. He gets them to Jesus. So he takes into account, in this case, the crowd's heritage. You're with me. We're sitting together in the walls of the citadel of David in Jerusalem. It was a year ago this week that I was there. It was a Saturday night, Shabbat, Sabbath as we call it here. Long, intensive day. Multi-sensory day. We did the Via Della Rosa. We did the whole gamut of of, of high-level experience in Jerusalem. People are exhausted. Between Pamela and me sits a couple academics. One turns to the other and said, this day has been multi-sensory overload. When just then, the lights darken, we're in the Citadel of David, A nighttime presentation begins celebrating Jerusalem's 4,000 years of history through sights and sounds. And amid the archaeological remains in the citadel's courtyard and the sound of original music, 
there's this virtual reality image that begins to appear in the scene that connects dots of history, connecting the stories of David to the Roman conquest, the Roman conquest to the time where there was Islamic invasion, Islamic invasion to the Crusaders, the story of Suleiman the Magnificent. Forty-five minutes or so of presentation through visual and musical highlighting history of the Jews. When all is said and done, the husband turns to the wife and said, now this truly is overload. Not all the people understood their history. Most didn't know how Old Testament connects to New, but we do Old and New Testament week by week here. We want to make connections while others are simply dealing with disconnections of life. What fascinated me as I watched this is that, as you and I would rightly expect, there was no, in the visual presentation, nothing with regard to the cross of Christ. Nothing with regard to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because you and I here in the States, we measure time by B.C. and A.D., don't we? Before Christ and after death. But there, in the very heart of the world's history, the epicenter of the globe, they measure time by B.C.E. and C.E., before the Common Era, and the Common Era, where the cross and the resurrection have been removed from life experience. And so people walk away wondering, what's this all about? They don't know their Jewish history, but again, we work through both Older and Newer Testaments here. And we ponder the significance of what Peter's doing because he's chosen his on-ramp. He knows that they value their history. He's the God of Abraham. He is the God of Isaac. He's the God of Jacob, isn't God? But then he does a wrap-up, and he then speaks to the fact that this God is the God of our fathers. But then he directs the flow of traffic toward Jesus, as should you and as should I, no matter what life's experiences. I'm involved in a conversation. Someone is asking the question, now what about the UN and the rise and the involvement of Putin here? And I ask, do you realize that Russia, Syria, and Iran come from the same ethnic core of time past? Look at current global politics and ponder why is there this triad of connectedness and how does that relate to Jesus? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. Peter then brings it right into Jesus, as should you and as should I. And then he gets personal, which you and I need to do when we redirect traffic. Whom you delivered over. And what happened with Pilate, by the way? What went on here? whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, whom he decided to release. Notice now how he, he adds one after another phrases and titles of this one we know as Jesus. 
you denied the holy, righteous one. But look what comes next. Asked for a murderer to be granted for you. Now the one who knows the Bible knows that that murderer's name was Barabbas. Barabbas in the original language means son of the father. Most likely his father was a rabbi. But Jesus Christ is also the son of the father. In other words, they had a substitution plan on their minds. Would it be the earthly father, the son of the earthly father, or the son of the heavenly father? Will Barabbas substitute himself for Jesus, or will Jesus substitute himself for Barabbas? Bring it home. You and I are continuously dealing with people who have substitution plans for life. They substitute themselves for God. They substitute what they have for God, what they want in place of God. Maybe they substitute their jobs for God. But the original substitution plan from a secular's point of view was in the Garden of Eden when the evil one wanted Eve to substitute self for God. Remedied at a subsequent garden, Garden Gethsemane, Jesus makes his way to the cross, and there he substitutes himself for us. Now, what we find here is the collision of substitution plans, which is happening in the culture even today, where people are either substituting themselves for God, or God has substituted himself for us via the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And so now he gets personal. You killed the author of life. Irony. Kill the author of life. Irony. Whom God raised from the dead. Evidence. Witness. To this we are witnesses. And then, the most extraordinary thing happens, because you're up to verse 16 now, where once again, Peter utilizes the emphasis upon the name. And in verse 16, and in his name, by faith in his name, Peter's not out to make a name for himself, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Pause right there. What I want you to see now as you're connecting chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Acts is the way in which the apostles emphasize the name of Jesus, particularly after each and every extraordinary event. Take, for example, after they begin to speak in tongues, these apostles, which were in the dialect of the people that were present there in Jerusalem at the time they, which they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 21, in his explanation of that moment, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then not to outdo himself, again in Acts chapter 2, where you find your way up to verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, each and every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And then furthermore, with this second miraculous event within Jerusalem, you make your way into Acts chapter 3, and there you have it in verse 6. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And now he pushes the envelope to the point now where he takes what I will call the immediate and connects it to the ultimate. 
They're caught up in gazing at the immediate. This man has been raised up. He couldn't walk, now he walks. Jesus is finding that his name is being used by Peter at this point as Peter redirects the traffic flow of thought from the miraculous raising up this individual to the miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where in verse 16, his name by faith in his name is made this man strong, whom you see and know in the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of y'all. He was a southern Jew, you know, he said y'all. So anyways, you're thinking about this at this point, and then all of a sudden you say, I think I even know of others who have grappled with this whole matter of where is God in the midst of the paralysis of life. And you're right, not only did Dennis Bird rise up and walk, but what about Johnny Erickson anyways? Who writes, I can face today with hope. I want to emphasize present tense faith. It's taking God's promises and acting on them today. Here this paralyzed woman goes on to say as a quadriplegic, this right way of looking at God's assurances is the stuff of which people of faith are made they simply take God at his word and live on that basis. And when I started living like this, I suddenly understood I could get a jump start on heaven, and I found that ironic, as if she can get a jump start on anything. But she chooses her words wisely, you see, and effectively and impactfully. I could start living for eternity today, so she's taking the immediate and connecting it to the ultimate. I could have confidence that God had his busy fingers working on me moment by moment, even though I couldn't see or feel them. And she ends with a punch. Great faith is not the ability to believe long and far into the misty future. It's simply taking God at his word. Irony now. And taking the next step. So says this woman who's unable to take physical next steps. You're on now. You're the traffic cop. You're redirecting the flow of traffic. You found your on-ramp. You're in the midst of the traffic flow. Now you're going to shift from God's plan for Christ to, second of all, God's promise in Christ. You're up to verse 17 at this point. Notice how contemporary he is. Notice how contemporary you need to be. You're connecting past to the present. You're connecting the present to the future. You are a big thinker. You are a full-spectrum thinker. You're not someone who lives in the past. You're someone who learns from the past. And you connect past, present, and future as you deal with the immediate and move towards the ultimate. And now, brothers, in other words, what are we going to do with this? with this immediate experience that we've encountered. And a lot of people this morning are asking themselves, hey, what do I do with what I've just experienced? Do I just simply sit and gaze and cough? Here's what Peter has to say. I know that you acted in ignorance, he says to these religious unbelievers, as did also your rulers, with a nod to even the secular unbelievers. Underline what comes next. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. 
I don't know about you, but I love Gandalf. And there in The Hobbit, where you got this fo- small furry creature called Bilbo, he's being urged by one of my, most, my favorite people in all history, Gandalf, in literature. It's fiction, of course. But you see, there's a lot of reality in fiction. It's to join some dwarfs in their efforts to recover this incredible treasure from a fire-breathing dragon. And the dragon's killed, the treasure's recovered, and in their songs of celebrations, the people sing of the rivers running with gold. And then, as Tolkien would note, just as the old song had prophesied, where at one point Bilbo says this to Gandalf, the prophecies of the old songs have turned out to be true after a fashion, to which Gandalf responds, well, of course, and why should not they prove true? Surely you don't believe the prophecies because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself. You don't really suppose, do you, that all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck just for your own benefit? Ah, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, the prophecies, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So now you're up to verse 19, and he's got to get incredibly personal with them. What do you do with this religious crowd who, who thinks they're acceptable to be God before God because they're religious? Repent is his first word. Greek word, metaneo, involves a change in one's thinking, metaneo. In other words, he's the traffic cop now, and he's going to redirect the thought processes away from this man who's been raised from being lame to the ultimate man who was raised from the dead, Jesus, the God-man. But furthermore, he will go on to say, no, he repent, he will also add the next phrase here, turn back, apostrophe, the Greek word at this point. A word that the physician Luke loves because you will find it again in Acts chapter 9, verse 35, where Peter saw many who turned to the Lord, apostrophe, as did those in Antioch who heard the words of life from men of Cyrus and Cyrene. Quote, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned, apostrophe, you see, to the Lord. He uses it again and again and again. In other words, there's going to have to be a turning. And so now you're the traffic cop at this point, and you're redirecting the flow of conversational traffic. You're redirecting the thought processes that people have about Jesus Christ, and you're redirecting them. They were headed away from Christ. You are redirecting them toward Christ, and you are linking the experiences of the present now to the ultimate experience in the future when they stand before the Lord. And at this point, then, he goes on to say something of significance. That your sins may be blotted out. What fascinates us at this point is that it's an incredible word because ancient writing was was upon a papyrus, papyrus. And as historians put it, the ink had no acid in it, so it couldn't grip the papyrus like modern ink can grip simply lay on top of it. 
So to erase the writing, a man simply wiped it away with a wet sponge. That's the word picture here. God wipes it away. That's your sins may be literally wiped away. And now, notice here, it goes on to say, you have made your way to verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. In other words, the return of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Constantinople, Istanbul, visitor to the Sophia Hagia, Stands quietly for a time, marveling at this incredible architecture. You know, the, the mosque was once a Christian church. But then Islam overtook the area, turned it into a Mohammedan place of worship. And all the Christian symbols wiped out, covered over with Arabic lettering. But then it happened. As a visitor was standing there, he looked up at the dome heart almost stood still, grabbed a fellow traveler by the arm and said, look, look, he's coming back. Jesus is coming back. He could see that the cover-up paint that had been added over the centuries was wearing off, and the figure of Christ was beginning to show up again. Now what Peter is saying is, Jesus is about to show up again. See how he takes them from the immediate to the ultimate? See how he connects past, present, and future? He is a brilliant theologian cop as he redirects the traffic flow. For the sake of time, I want to turn your attention now to the third and final aspect of this redirection. You've noted with me God's plan for Christ in 11 through 16. Second of all, you notice God's promise in Christ, beginning with 17. You took it down to verse 24. But now there's a third aspect to this. God's purpose through Christ. Check it out. You're at 25. Here now, what Peter's about to do is he's going to find his off-ramp. When you're involved in redirecting conversations, when you're getting people to re-engage with what matters most, with who matters most, there is God's plan. God's plan for Christ. There is God's promise in Christ. Thirdly, God's purpose through Christ. And so as he makes his way towards his off-ramp in this conversation, he keep them thinking after he's no longer involved in the give and the take, which you and I have to do if we're going to affect this culture positively with the cross of Christ. Here's his punch. You are the sons of the prophets of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And he takes them to their Torah. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. 
rich words that connected to them personally as they connect to their heritage spiritually and ethnically. And now what he's doing is he's speaking to them evangelistically and he connects what I'll call the blessing of 25 to the beneficiaries of 26. God, having raised up his servant, that's Jesus, tied to Isaiah 53, sent him to you first, not to you only. In other words, there's going to be Gentiles to be part of this as well. To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. For as the Apostle Paul put it, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And again in Galatians chapter 3, 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring is according to the promise. And now what you and I have done at this point is we've connected the plan to the promise, to the purpose. You found your off-ramp. You leave them with something to think about. You've been blessed through the cross, the death, and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are the beneficiary of the blessing, something that Dennis Bird understood in Rise and Walk. It's a miracle. It's knowing that all of life is a blessing, he said. And we go on to say, I believe that. I always will. Do you? Let's stand together. Father, we've tried to be succinct in what we say, yet comprehensive in what we've covered. Those that love Jesus, conversations are tough. Help us to use these models of on-ramps and off-ramps, how Peter began, a series of questions. Peter ended talking about the blessing and the need to put faith and trust in Jesus. Equip us to do similar. Believers are meant to be the traffic cops in the conversational flow of life. So Father, help us to find Solomon's portico, so to speak. Take what's immediate and turn it into something that gets them to think about what's ultimate, Jesus. And for those that come to any of these services today, maybe religiously curious, maybe spiritually interested, but have not put faith and trust in Jesus, I pray they will take the immediacy of this presentation from your word, personalize it, get engaged with it, because there's an ultimate reality of someday standing before God. I pray that each and every one has put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. For this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.